So last week we began um, the book of Acts and we tackled all of chapter 1 and the, the theme really was the kingdom of God. Our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, marks the end of the old covenant era. Something new is beginning in Acts 2. The Bible has a lot of continuity. So there's going to be some changes, but there's a lot of continuity. Ever since the very first sin, forgiveness was always only through faith. Throughout the Old Testament, the only way a dead sinner could believe the promises of God was by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. A difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is where the Holy Spirit dwells. In the Old Covenant, God's covenantal presence was in the temple. In the New Covenant, He indwells individual Christians. So Acts 2 verses 1 through 13 is about the inauguration of the new covenant. The new covenant, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to bear witness to the resurrected king, to spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Last week, that was my summary of what the whole book of Acts is about. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in his church. And so now in line with Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus commissioned his disciples He told them that they would begin their witness in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In Acts 2, the witnessing begins in Jerusalem. It's happening at the time of the Feast of Pentecost. And so we read that Jews and converts to Judaism were visiting Jerusalem from all over the known world. And so this means that right from the beginning... When the gospel is preached and people go back to their homes, the witnessing to the ends of the earth already begins right here in Acts chapter 2. So what we're going to see today, first I'm going to look at some of the background, the Feast of Pentecost in verse 1. Then we're going to look at the coming of the Holy Spirit with power verses 2 to 4, and then the witness to the ends of the earth, already in verses 5 to 13. So first, uh, a little bit of background on the the Feast of Pentecost. So in verse 1 in our text, we're told that it was the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost was an Old Testament feast way before it became the birthday of the New Covenant Church. The word Pentecostos means 50th in Greek. So it occurs on the 50th day after the the first day of the Passover feast. So I kind of read, we read through all those feasts in Leviticus because that's the background to uh, this celebration, this feast in Acts chapter 2. So Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. It was the day of the first fruit. On that day, the people presented the first fruit of the wheat harvest to God. Um, 
in my what I'm reading, I've got lots of Bible references, and for uh, to be smooth, I'm trying. I'm not going through all of them. But if you do want notes, we place we put them on the website with every reference. And anyway, just so you know. Um, so later in Israel's history, the Feast of Pentecost started to become associated with the giving of the law. You're not going to find that in the Bible, but already it seems like uh, the timeline does fit. So according to Exodus 19.1, the people arrived at Sinai on the third new moon after their departure from Egypt. So this would be around 45 days after the, the first Passover. So the timeline fits, but theologically as well, uh, there are texts that connect the giving of the law with the Holy Spirit. So uh, God spoke through Jeremiah saying, I will put my law within them. I will write them on their hearts. So while the, in the old covenant, uh, the, the law was on tablets of stone, the new covenant, the, in the new covenant, the law is placed on hearts. And there's a parallel text about the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, where the prophet says he will, uh, that God will put his spirit within them. And so in Jeremiah, he's going to put his law within them. In Ezekiel, he's going to put his spirit within them. So it seems like there's a parallel between those two. What does this all mean for us? We need to see that the New Testament shows that Christ fulfills those Old Testament feasts. The people of Israel slaughtered the Passover lamb on a Friday. And then Saturday was the first day of unleavened bread or the first day of the, the Passover feast. And then um, on, that, on the third day after the sacrificing of the Passover lamb was the feast of the first fruit. And then seven weeks after the first day of uh, Passover was the Feast of Weeks. Like I just confused you. Essentially, you have a Friday, they kill the Passover lamb. Um, Saturday, Passover begins. And then the next day is the Feast of the First Fruit. And then uh, seven weeks after the second day, we're on a Sunday, seven weeks later, it's the Feast of Pentecost. Christ fulfills all of this. He was slaughtered on a Friday as the Passover lamb. Uh, in Christ, we celebrate a greater exodus uh, than the bondage of slavery, but now the bondage out, uh, out of the bondage of sin. Um, remember that third, third day was the feast of the first fruit? It was on that day that Christ was raised from the grave, and he is called the first fruit from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And then 50 days after Passover, Christ fulfills the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of Weeks. In his ministry, Jesus spoke of a harvest. In Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest Jesus is talking about is a harvest of people. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul calls Christians first fruit. 
he, um, he writes that God chose them to be the first fruit to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. So the, the new covenant now uh, fulfills this feast of weeks, this feast of harvest when people get saved. And in, later in Acts chapter 2, we'll get there, I think in two weeks, we see that Jesus' harvest goes from 120 to 3,000 who um, get saved and are baptized and are added into the church. If you remember, maybe you'll remember this, uh, the first Pentecost, so giving of the law, um, as Moses was receiving the the commandments, the the people uh, built a, they created a golden calf. And as a result of that sin, 3,000 were put to death. And now in this greater Pentecost, about 3,000 find eternal life. And so we have a bit of a, a reversal right there. So that was the background of the, the Feast of Pentecost uh, from a little bit of Old Testament and what Christ, what Christ has, is fulfilling. Now the second point is the event itself, the coming of the Spirit in verses 2 So in Acts 2, 2 to 4, there are 120 disciples who are in the upper room and the Spirit comes upon them. Luke notes a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Then he writes different tongues or different languages like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In verse 4, Luke interprets this event. He says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems like with those images, Luke is describing the indescribable. But he does use symbols or or words that that, that have biblical connotations. So first, the the idea of wind, that symbolizes the Holy Spirit. In both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same word. And there's also biblical precedent for talking about uh, the activity of the Spirit with sound of wind. Jesus does that in John 3, 8, when he's talking to Nicodemus. Also, the the image of fire also evokes some biblical biblical images. Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses in a burning bush. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, God leads them by a a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, Exodus 13. When the people finished building the tabernacle, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by night, by day, and fire was it, was on it by night. And then similar things occurs in 1 Kings 8 with the accomplishments of uh, the temple. Once it is complete. And so what we see here as we trace the theme of, of fire and or the cloud is that they refer to the presence of God. This presence of God, the Old Testament was mediated first through a, a portable tent with the tabernacle and then the temple. In the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear that he is the temple of God. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. In John 2.19, he says his body is, uh, he refers to his body 
as the temple. But even just his name, Emmanuel, God with us, teaches us that he is the embodiment of the temple. Where he goes is where God goes. That was the role of the tabernacle and then the temple. When he's taken up, he sends the spirit to live in his followers. So in the new covenant, the temple of God is the body of Christ, which is the church, but also individual Christians. So we see that image of fire resting upon those believers in the upper room refers us back to those other pictures of the fire coming down on the tabernacle, on the temple. And so it is clear that Christians now are the temple of God. The application for us is if you are a believer, you are the temple of God. And we have a a few following are a few applications. This first one from being the temple of God comes from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, which reads, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This means we must treat each other like temples of God. And so this doesn't mean that um, this doesn't apply to people outside the church as well. Um, The principles do, though they're not the temple of God. But how does having a grudge against a fellow Christian stand when we remember that they are the temple of God? How can we speak negatively about vessels who contain the Holy Spirit? Second application comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, which reads, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In context, Paul is addressing sexual misconduct. Our bodies are the temple of God, the house of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be careful about how we use our bodies. There are many reasons not to misuse sex. Some could be to avoid diseases or to avoid social harms. But the most important reason is that as Christians... Our bodies are God's house. A third uh, application from being the temple of God is that we must live for God alone. He lives in us. We take him with us everywhere we go. Our goal must be to, to fit must be to fit with God's will. We want our lives to fit within God's will. For the world. And we accomplish God's will by relying on His work, His working in our lives. So we do this by spending time contemplating who God is and what He has done. We do this by enjoying fellowship with God in prayer. We do this by gathering as a body to worship God together. We do this by studying the scriptures that we would seek God's guidance in all things. And as we do, 
God works through His church. People are saved through the church. People find wholesome community and relationships in the church. People grow in holiness through the church. If you're like, why are you talking about the church? Isn't that God's work? It's intentional. The more we live in light of the fact that we are the temple of God, the more the work of the church and the work of God become synonymous. And the reason is that He is the one who is at work within us. Third point, we're going to see now the effect of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 13, the witnessing in power of the mighty works of God. So in Acts 2, verses 5 through 13, we have Jews and converts to Judaism from the known world in Jerusalem because of the Feast of Pentecost, and they hear witnessing. They hear the gospel. The sound of other tongues and languages causes the crowd to gather. This crowd, according to the text, includes Judeans and devout men. According to Acts 2.5, they were from all nations under heaven. They were in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And that word devout refers to Jews or converts to Judaism doesn't mean just Gentile God it specifically in this context. Acts 2, verse 9 through 11, then as you remember me stumbling through that list of locations, describes um, it's a, a list of places where all the people were from. This list has some theological aspects to it. There's some debate about what, what this list could refer to. It seems like this, the closest we have to this list elsewhere in the Bible is in Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 13. In Isaiah chapter 11, we have a portrayal of the new covenant in which a new exodus. So what we had were the first exodus was out of the bondage in Egypt. And when the people were sent in exile in Babylon and Assyria, the prophets were using exodus type language to refer to a new work that God was going to do in delivering his people again. And Isaiah 11 is one of those texts that's speaking of the, the deliverance, a greater deliverance of the people of God. And there's a list that describes um, the places of which the diaspora of Jews would return from going back to Jerusalem. And so if this is what this text is alluding to, it is showing that the new exodus is complete in Christ as they now are in Jerusalem and some of them about to receive the Holy Spirit. A second theological aspect to the area that is described, it seems like the, the area described matches, it includes more than, but it covers the whole area of the promised land promised to Abraham in Genesis fifteen eighteen, And so as we saw last week, hints about the restoration of Israel, this would be one of them. When converts following this event go home, 
we would have spirit-filled people in the whole land that God promised to Abraham. Then a third parallel that we may have going on here is with the story of Babel. At Babel, God confused the languages. At Pentecost, we don't have a reversal of Babel, but a healing of Babel through the miracle of tongues. People are hearing a unifying message of the great deeds of God. The Holy Spirit empowers 120 disciples to bear witness to the crucified Messiah to people from the ends of the earth. Then in verses 12 and 13, we have two responses to the gift of tongues. Some are amazed and want to know more. Others think the people are drunk. Following of four applications. Um, we, first, we live in a world that divides over probably everything. Worldview, politics, preferences, Coke or Pepsi. No, I'm kidding. That's trivial. Um, but for big deals, people divide over many things. What we have in our text are people gathered, gathered from all nations under heaven. And God communicates the gospel to them in their own languages. This is the miracle of tongues. It means that people from all over the world, languages, different cultures, gather around the gospel. We need to celebrate the uniqueness of what it is that we experience in church. So we happen to be a very diverse group of people. But even if we were not, based on the location that we could find ourselves, even if we were not a diverse group of people, every local church is part of God's church, which to date is the biggest international multicultural organization of all time. And so this teaches us that Jesus is for all people. Second, uh, in the book of Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues occurs again. Jesus commissions his followers to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the first century, from a Jewish perspective, there were four categories of people. The Jews, Samaritans, Gentile God-fearers and Gentile non-God-fearers. At Pentecost, the Spirit fell on Jews. Those devout people refers to people who converted to Judaism in Jerusalem. So we have Jerusalem and that first group of people. There is a similar event that occurs in Acts 8 in Samaria. And so Samaritans experience the same thing. God-fearers experience the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, and they also speak in tongues, Acts 10, 44-48. Finally, non-God-fearing Gentiles also receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 19, and they also speak in tongues. So the repetition of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues <coughs> shows the common experience among all these different groups of people. The gospel tears down the social divide and in Christ, all people unite. All can be 
full members of God's people. This is going to be a big issue in the rest of the New Testament. The question is, do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians? And this is teaching us, all people have an equal status within the church. We can try to divide, we can try to create different classes of God's people. In the first century, it was the divide between Jew and Gentiles. We can create divisions over uh, politics, over race, over different economic stati, statuses, stati, yeah, okay. Um, even spiritual separations on who has the greatest gift. But the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh shows that none of this can stand. Our human nature divides, but any form of discrimination is anti-gospel. Third, we see that the disciples did not have to do anything extraordinary. God gave them tongues to speak. But before this, they obeyed God. He told them, remain in Jerusalem. They did that. We also read in Acts 1.14 that they were devoted to prayer. And then we see that God acts in a mighty way. So we must pray. We must obey God in all areas of life. There's a text later on in Acts 2 that shows um, the activities of the church. Very simple activities. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They prayed. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They enjoyed fellowship. And then God uses the church to witness to all people. Simple. Fourth, the text ends with two responses. The gospel message tends to lead to two responses. When Jesus taught in parables, there was a group of people that came to Jesus with questions. Others just left. With speaking of tongues, we seem to have the same two responses. Some think they're drunk, and others ask, what does this mean? God draws some and not others. We can't explain why the Spirit draws some and not others. From a human standpoint, exploring Jesus always confronts our sins. Jesus is light, so he will expose the darkness within us. Some who hear cannot stand to be found out for who they are. Sometimes we are not ready to deal with our own sinfulness. For this reason, the self-righteous will not want anything to do with Jesus. Not everyone will respond favorably to the gospel. And this is true for us as well. The same way people ridicule the disciples, calling them drunk, people will think faith in Christ in 2023 is laughable. Just think about what was happening in this text. The, the Holy Spirit is the greatest evangelist. Those who mocked heard the Holy Spirit-inspired preaching of God's mighty deeds, particularly the resurrection of Jesus, and they still mocked. And so today, expect curiosity and hardness to the gospel message. To conclude, Pentecost begins, in, begins a new era in God's redemptive history. 
This is the era in which we live in. Believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses to the resurrected Christ. We bear witness to the kingdom of God. We testify that God has conquered death. This kingdom unites all kinds of people from all kinds of places. One of our challenges is, could be to read a text like this and wonder, why don't we experience anything as exciting as what we have in this text? We have family members that we wish would become believers. Perhaps they are colleagues, perhaps they are friends, perhaps a spouse, children. We need to rethink the powerful works of God today. There's a book by a pastor called Greg Boyd called Letters to a Skeptic. And in this book, it's a dialogue between Greg Boyd and his atheist father. And by the end of the book, the dad, who is 74 years old, becomes a Christian. It happens. Don't lose hope. But we don't need books. We don't need the internet to hear of God's great work. Just listen to the testimonies of people in this very room. God has performed a miracle in every one of your lives if you have become a Christian. It's a miracle. Every time God causes one to become born again. Our church exists because of God's miracles, because the church has witnessed. We've heard the gospel and we believe. Some had believing parents who raised their children in the ways of the Lord. And this is a very important part of the Great Commission. Others befriended Christians, and that led to conversations, and it led to faith. Others started reading the Bible, attending church, and then had an encounter with the living God. I can't explain it, but it's God's grace and his power. He is alive and at work. Now, as followers of Jesus, um, it is our job to be intentional about our faith. Uh, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go, uh, to, to be his witnesses in Acts or in Matthew 28, to make disciples by baptizing and teaching to do everything that Christ commanded. And God typically works through and beyond, but, but through the local church. It's a very important um, uh, means by which God operates. And so I want to encourage you, visitors, I'm not talking to you unless you come back, but if you are committed, be committed to a local church. Be committed to making it a vibrant place. If you can, host meals, host visitors, host get to know the people who are part of your church family. So it starts to feel like a family. Outside of the church, let people know that you believe in Jesus. May it be known. Risk, perhaps, being laughed at. Perhaps some will ask, what does this all mean? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the events of Pentecost. We thank you for everything Jesus did and fulfilling all those Old Testament feasts, but also not only um, forgiving our sins, but also being God with us now through your Holy Spirit. 
Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit, the fact that he causes us to become born again, softens our hearts, allows us to hear, believe, understand the gospel, and now for his ongoing ministries in our lives, to um, remind us of the truth, to convict us of sin, to comfort us in our uh, struggles, and, and above all, to testify to our spirit that we are your children. Father, I pray that you would um, use this message and use the different, um, this, the, this text to minister to the people in this room and that uh, they would be encouraged and not only reminded of the, the great work that you have done in their lives, but also um, be comforted as they think about loved ones that they may wish would experience that same joy of knowing Jesus and that you would use them in, in a mighty way they seek to bear witness to who you are with their words and also their lifestyle. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.